Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bring, bring it Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Jake, a Newcastle fan, and you can get me on Twitter at JakeJack2M. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie, here to talk about Burnley. I write an ad at the morning, have the newsletter. It goes out on Substack every Monday, and you can follow me on Twitter at JamieSmithSports. Hi, I'm Tad, a Liverpool fan and host of EPL Index's a Tad Predictable podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Tad Predicts. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. I think we have to start off by talking about Chelsea because of everything that happened this week. And it isn't even the match, which, sorry, Jake, uh, we might touch on the match itself later. But continuing to dominate the headlines are Chelsea and all of these sanctions and lawsuits that are piling up against them. A couple of high-profile drop sponsorships, including their kit sponsor, three. Uh, so I was just kind of curious what you guys have made of this whole past week from Chelsea and, and it if they seem to be as doomed as some claim with people saying that the players are already seeing if they can void their contracts because of this stuff, um, that uh, they might fold in like three weeks because they're going to go bankrupt because all their bank accounts have been shut off. Just all this stuff. Just what do you guys make of it? Yeah, it's obviously uh, something I don't really have a lot of knowledge on in in, in terms of what, what is possible for them? What what are the potential uh, scenarios that could come out of it? Um, yeah, it's all a bit new, isn't it? It's all a bit weird. Um, I'm slightly surprised. I'm, I'm either surprised it's taken this long to, to put some of these sanctions in place or I'm surprised it's happened. Like, I feel like it should have either happened straight away or it sh- shouldn't have happened. So it feels like a strange sort of halfway house that they've gone for. Um, but yeah, it's a, obviously concerned for Chelsea fans. They've, uh, you know, become accustomed to a certain... A certain type of football and a certain type of uh, winning football over the last 20 years. Um, you know, current European champions won several Premier League titles. It's, so it's a huge change for them. And uh, I think we've we've seen how successful the sort of Abramovich's ownership and indoctrination of the, the fan base has become by how they've reacted to it. Um, so yeah, it's a really quite a strange situation. I don't, I don't think they're going to cease to be a club. I think that's a little bit... Um, fanciful at the moment. I think that they'll probably get new owners um, probably before the summer. Um, you know, takeovers do take quite a long time to, to happen. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. There's, you know, that huge business still. It's not like they're trying to sign a right back. They're, they're trying to sell a complete, a whole club. And in the current situations with the, with the owner not being involved in that, I mean, I've got to imagine there's a lot of legal um, a lot of lawyers looking into it, both from the club side, the Bramvich's side, the government side, the Premier League side. You know, there's a lot of moving parts. So I can't imagine it's going to be a quick, quick resolution. But at the same time, 
there has to be a resolution because if this, you know, if that, what what is currently in, in um, what's currently asked of them with the restrictions, that can't move into the summer because then it it becomes a little bit, yeah, really difficult for them to, you know, they're going to lose players that are out of contract. They're going to struggle to, you know, they won't be able to sell anybody, won't be able to sign anybody, they won't be able to sell season tickets. Um, they won't be able to sell the new kit. I'm not, you know, that you've mentioned free want to move, uh, want to, to stop being on the front of the shirts, but the club physically can't print new shirts, so they're going to have to continue wearing them. So, uh, you know, that free have played it amazingly. They've got a great PR thing of walking away from it, but they're also still being broadcast to Premier League audiences. So, I mean, that was a great bit of PR from from then. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's going to be, it's going, it's it's a fast developing situation, but. You know, take it. There's so many moving parts, and, and this one is completely different to anything we've seen before. But I don't think we're going to see, you know, all the players leave. Like if, currently, they can't. Um, and uh, you know, if, if if their agents want to employ lawyers to try and get them out of their contracts, I'm sure the club will, you know, do the same. So yeah, it's, it's a weird one. It, it's definitely, uh, you know, I don't have the expertise to comment on it, but. I think that it's probably going to end in a, a new owner. And, I, and it, the fan base have not really learned much from this current situation because I've seen, I think there's a Saudi um, consortium heavily linked and I've seen a lot of Saudi flags and Chelsea Twitter names and pushing for Saudi ownership. So it feels like out of the frying pan into the fire with that one. Um, but yeah, it's a weird one. I just, I don't really know what to comment on it, but, you know, they, they're going to be fine. They'll move on. I don't think it's going to be the end of the club. I think they're going to be in the Premier League next year, probably with with owners that will continue to spend money. And uh, yeah, it's in you know six months' time. This is just going to be a really small chapter that, that, that the club has recovered from. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Jake said there. I think um, obviously as well, it's the old saying, isn't it? Football's the most important of the, the not important things, and it all pales into insignificance when you consider what's actually going on in Ukraine. It seems to have to be talking about the future of Chelsea Football Club, but this is what we have to do. This is why we're a podcast, so we have to do that. Um, I think ordinarily in this situation, you'd feel bad for the fans, right? Well, I don't feel sorry for the fans at all. <laughs> I was uh, last week and the Chelsea fans were singing Roman Abramovich's name throughout the period of um, whatever it was called officially, the, the minute for, for Ukraine when people were showing support for Ukraine. They decided to ruin that by chanting for Roman Abramovich, who promptly got sanctioned, so all their finances have been frozen. So it's a bit life comes at you fast from my point of view, from, from the, the Chelsea fan perspective. Um, and I think it's important to remember as well that Chelsea were just a mid-table club known for having horrible hooligan fans before Abramovich came in, really. They were sort of mid-table, a cup team, really. Um, and Abramovich's dirty legal money has obviously fueled pushing them into Europe's elite and delivered the European title and all those Premier League titles and countless domestic cups. So. He's obviously transformed the club. Um, in hindsight, you can talk about whether he should have been allowed to buy it in the first place. I think closer to home, Jake can obviously talk about another takeover that maybe shouldn't have been allowed. So clearly the rules aren't fit for purpose as they stand. Talking about the Premier League, 
Um, I agree with Jake as well. I think it, it was the right decision to do it, to sanction Abramovich and put Chelsea in this position. Um, but it should have been done faster. I think they basically gave him time to move money out of the country. Um, and I think we saw in the statement that he made initially when he talked about putting the club in the, the hands of the Chelsea Trust or something, that he was, he was basically trying to dodge this exact situation um, and failed to do so. So I think it's a tough one. It's essentially unprecedented, isn't it? We haven't seen we haven't seen a situation like this before where a Premier League club is essentially not able to function as a business. I think I'm right in saying that. I certainly don't remember this happening before. We've seen clubs in financial difficulties, but not to the extent where they're talking about not being sure how they're going to travel to a European away game, not being sure how they're going to pay their players' wages at the end of the month, and more importantly, the wages of staff who are going to be on relatively normal salaries and have mortgages and things to pay for. So I think it's important to remember the, the real people inside the club who are going to be affected by this. But yeah, I think Jake's right. And that essentially, some other billionaire will probably come in, take over, and Chelsea will continue to function pretty much as normal. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm curious your guys' thoughts on the fact that they could be linked to to more billionaire owners and, you know, the fact that they're Saudi is a thing that we don't want to get too far into, although it does seem like football has been very interested in taking all of the money without having to think about where it's coming from. And the second it makes them look bad, they all of a sudden want to get out of bed with that group, but then immediately do it with just another group, with other political ramifications. But but that to the side, do we think because of Chelsea's success in the Abramovich era that somebody will just pay billions to take them out and they're now just at that level of, of profile even though, you know, allegedly stadium building was supposed to take Tottenham there. They obviously haven't done that step yet. But are we just thinking that because of the success on the pitch that everybody views them as one of those, like, big top clubs, even though historically they weren't? Yeah, I mean, you've got to, got to think they've got the infrastructure there now. Maybe not the stadium, but they've got a, a really good training ground. They've got a great academy. They've got um, a, a, world, a worldwide fan base. You know, they've got trophies to their name. Like it, it's going to be. They're not just going to, you know, return to the level that they were before. Roman Abramovich not going to fall down and be a mid-table Premier League club. It's, they're too ingrained into the into the top tier of the ta- top tier of European football for that to happen. Um, you know, maybe it depends who buys them. I mean, there's a lot of different people being linked to it now, all with different. Um, I guess all with different ideas for the club. You know, you'll get some that are like. The Arsenal Liverpool owners that want to come and run it for a profit and try and stay there sustainably. You'll get others that might do similar to Roman Abramovich and just spend a lot of money. And then you might get others that want to do something completely different. It's, it's such early days at the moment. And all these different parties that have been linked to it have all got their own different journalists in their pockets, pushing their own agendas. And... Yeah, it's, it's too early to tell where they're going to go, but they, they definitely do have the infrastructure. You know, they're currently in the Champions League, likely to qualify for it next season. So, yeah, I can't see them falling down. Uh, at any point, it'd be the same with City now. If, if, they, if anything happened to their owners, they're only, you know, staying where they currently are. It's the, 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 this, these money, the, these clubs that have money, they inject the money, they build the infrastructure, they get the success on the pitch, and then that that puts them at the top table. You can't just 
and it was going to fall away from that. Same with PSG. PSG were, you know, they were a club that occasionally got in the Champions League, didn't have a great deal of league success. Um, and now, at the biggest club in France, easily, they've got, you know, regularly in the Champions League, they're not going anywhere. It's, once you get this money, you're not going to, you're not going to fall apart, um, even with sanctions like this and, and the need for a quick ownership change. And sure, the people that are buying it are going to have to have money. So you can't buy a club like Chelsea now if you don't have money. Like it's, they're talking about three and a half billion, you know, you can't put that sort of money into a football club if you don't have money. It's like new, if you look at Newcastle, like they were bought for 350 million. They had a disenfranchised fan base. They had a, they had had success for years and they're primed to be a sports washing club, which is now what has happened with you see uh, Eddie Howe being asked about the all the deaths in Saudi Arabia today, and you get the fan base criticizing those journalists for what is doing all they're doing is doing their job. So, you know, there's a mobilized fan base for the Saudi Arabian regime now, and that's what's happened with Chelsea. You know, Roman Abramovich has mobilized that fan base and yeah, it's, it's sad the way sports fashion works, but it, it, it does work. And the reason it works is because it ingrained these clubs to, to have success. It happened at PSG, happened at Man City, happened at Chelsea, probably going to happen at Newcastle. And once they get that success, going back to the original question, they're going to stay there. They're not going to go anywhere else. So, yeah, Chelsea, whoever buys them, they're going to be at Champions League level, top six level for many a year. I think it's going to take, you know, decades for them to, to go anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, what, what I'd add is that the timing is obviously really good. If this is going to happen to your club, you obviously don't want it to ever happen. But while you're the European world champions in the top four in the Premier League, still in the Champions League, you're probably as good a time as you're going to get to try and find a banner, try and find a buyer, sorry. And I actually thought when this all first started happening, how are they going to find someone to, to buy it so quickly? But there's seemingly just an endless pool of billionaires who want to buy football clubs. Like, where do they all come from? How are there so many billionaires? I'm going off on a tangent, but yeah, I'm amazed at how many different parties <laughs> have apparently been with buying Chelsea. Like, find something else to do with your money, lads. Like, cure cancer or world poverty or something more useful. Um, coming back to Chelsea and getting off my soapbox, I think the other thing is that Abramovich spent huge amounts of money in the early years, but Chelsea now operates very sustainably compared mm, to a lot of Because of their academy, other, like Jake mentioned? Because, because of the academy, exactly. Chelsea stockpiled these players, and I think they are changing the rules to try and stop them warning out so many. But essentially, they bring in young players through the academy, develop them and sell them on which pays for the academy and it means that they can afford missteps in the transfer market like Timo Werner, like it looks like Romelu Lukaku is going to be another that's what, £150 million of strikers that hasn't worked out in the last couple of years but it doesn't matter as much because the academy is self-funding and they're developing players for the first team as well like Reese James, like Trevor Schauerbar, like Mason Mount probably more Chelsea Academy graduates in the Chelsea team than any of the other Premier League teams have managed so far. So their academy works as well as anyone's. Um, so it is a really good time to be buying Chelsea. I think the wider point, though, is there needs to be so much more scrutiny over who is allowed to buy these clubs. 
Um, arguably, the, the time to have this debate was last year when there was obviously the takeover at Newcastle. The Premier League somehow decided that it is not Saudi Arabia who has bought the club, even though the chairman dude is the same dude from the Saudi investment fund thing. I'm sure Jake can offer more clarity and explain why <laughs> it's not Saudi Arabia. But it's, it's very confusing for simpletons like me to try and understand. Um, but yeah, I, I think the best thing I read about it was in the Guardian newspaper over here, Barney Renee basically highlighted the the different bad owners that are around the Premier League. And there's no point arguing over who's done the most evil, nefarious stuff because a lot of them are just terrible. And you can't really compare and contrast. But it's almost like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted now. All these owners are already in. The Premier League welcomed Abramovich with open arms when he was spending loads of money and bringing Arjen Robbins to the Premier League and Didier Drogba to the Premier League and all these global stars. So it's a bit late now to turn around and say, oh, well, actually, we need to think about club ownership. I think that's that's sort of a bit too late to be worrying about now. But it will be interesting to see what sort of scrutiny there is on the Chelsea takeover given, um, like I say, it's unprecedented circumstances and the huge outcry that continues around the situation at Newcastle, rightly so, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be a Newcastle fan that says there's no link between the Saudi <laughs> state and the ownership because I'm not that deluded. I know some people are. <laughs> but I, I didn't want their takeover to happen, um, but I'm also not one of those people that can hold my morals so far that I can just walk away from it and just not support the club. So... But it, yeah, it definitely. Yeah, all these ownership, all these clubs shouldn't be owned by these people. Man City's owners shouldn't have been allowed in. You know, Abramovich shouldn't have been. Um, the Newcastle owners shouldn't have been allowed in. Uh, you could have a similar debate about Burnley's owner. Should he be allowed to buy the club in that way? Probably not. It, the Premier League, the way the ownership, um, sort of the owners' tests and the way the regs around owning clubs, they're all just so wrong. And there's no protection for the actual um, community assets. Um, yeah, it's, it's all a bit bad, and uh, yeah, there's one particular group that uh, have been heavily linked to buying Chelsea. I think it's Goal that are really pushing the claims of this Saudi media group. You know, if, if come on, if a Saudi, if a private Saudi company now go and buy Chelsea, you've got to ask questions of of of, of what can be done between Newcastle and Chelsea. Could the Newcastle owners, I don't know, make the make the Chelsea owners do certain things? Definitely, they could. Like that's the type of thing that. It, it makes me feel even more uneasy about what what's currently going on at my club. If there's more owners from that same country who could definitely be coerced into doing certain things, so if that if they do come in and buy the club, yeah, huge question has to be asked in the Premier League. But then you look at not to make it political. You look what what is Boris Johnson going to do in, in this week? Reportedly, go to Saudi Arabia and try and get more oil. So you, if, if that's happening in, in government, and we're the ones selling them. You know all all sorts of things. You can't really then criticise Newcastle fans or the pre- Premier League for allowing them to come in. It's it's all rotten to the top until it's not. Until the government have a reason to take a stance like they have with Russia at the moment. Yeah, just going to keep carrying on. They can you know play this play these cards to say they'll look at it. It's not right. They're not going to do it. It's money wins at the end of the day until. The government have to intervene in this case, <laughs> and eventually it will happen to Newcastle. Maybe might happen to City, but at the moment it's yeah, it's all just rotten, isn't it? 
Yeah, and that's what I was kind of saying after that that first question was, you know, we saw the exact same thing with FIFA and their like triple take at trying to figure out how to how to ban Russia and, and the best way to do that is everybody wants to make the, the kind of like you were saying about three. Everybody wants to make the statement but still keep getting the money. And until they literally can't take it anymore because of the amount of outcry or because of, you know, literal warmongering, then all of a sudden you kind of have to change your tune. But yeah, it, it would be really surprising if all of a sudden the Premier like, oh, we can't let Saudis in. Because then what does that say to your newest, you know, members of that ownership group that were just brought in at Newcastle? I, I think there's been a really interesting discussion about this uh, at slash from Tottenham supporters, because obviously we were the other London club that Abramovich was, uh, you know, considering buying. And so a lot of Spurs fans have been kind of on their their moral high horse this week saying, you know, we never wanted him and all this stuff. Uh, and then Chelsea fans are just saying, you're just jealous. Um, and, and like, don't pretend like you wouldn't have taken all the, the wins on the pitch knowing that it meant Abramovich. Fortunately, we don't have to know that. <laughs> I think kind of like Jake saying that he's, uh, you know, morally strong enough to not like them, but not enough to walk away from the club. I, I think it's the same. I absolutely would have liked the wins. I don't have to worry about how I felt about it, but... It's it it would have been uh, it would have been tough, you know. Would you not celebrate when the goals go in just because you know the owner has all these dubious ties? So like that's the part where I, I say don't really blame the fans. But to Jamie's point, I don't think many people are feeling bad for Chelsea fans uh, and haven't ever and also aren't now. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's a tough one. But yeah, on on the Spurs side, it's very easy for everybody to say that they never wanted Abramovich. Because of how things turned out. Obviously, we would have enjoyed the on-pitch success. But it's nice to not have to be shoved into that moral quandary that other clubs are currently having to deal with. But we'll leave all of that there for now. It'll be interesting to see how all of this pans out for Chelsea. And whether or not they're even allowed to sell the club right now. Because I don't think there's even been formal statements about whether or not they're actually allowed to. After the initial one that said that they couldn't. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see how all of that goes. Um, I, from there into actual football, uh, I was just sifting through some stats this week and realized that basically all of the clubs in the top six have had really good crossing statistics this season. This is, of course, after the 2010s with the tiki-taka movement and the possession-based movement where you weren't really seeing big clubs crossing the ball much. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of them was to to reduce the amount of open counterattacks that the other team would have, because uh, obviously if you just whip in a cross errantly and then a defender heads it the right direction, all of a sudden you're having to deal with, with a break the other direction. But all of a sudden, like I'm saying, in the 2020s, we're seeing a pretty rapid shift. Every year we've progressively seen a higher percentage of the top six clubs in the top six of accurate crosses. That's even more so the case this year. Four of the top six now, City, Liverpool, Manchester United, and West Ham lead the league in accurate crosses. And I was just curious why you think this has kind of made such a a massive comeback over the past few years. Is it a tactical shift? Is it that the players are just more able of, 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 you know, completing their crosses rather than just in a 4-4-2, just kind of whipping it in and praying? I'm, I'm just curious why you guys think that this is kind of on the bounce back. Um, I guess the most obvious thing would be the rise of full-backs and wing-backs that are becoming the main creative players for the team. You know, think of Liverpool, who's most likely to get the most assists in that team. You're going to say the two full-backs uh, for Manchester City. You might say Kevin De Bruyne, he often operates sort of crossing the ball in. You, you know, if you think of a trade bar, Kevin De Bruyne assist, it would be in the right channel, whipping a ball across the, across the face of the goal for, I don't know, Sterling to tap in. You've also got Cancelo, Biggest Stamford sort of crosses. You've got Chelsea with uh, when they were at their best this season, had 
Rich James and, and Ben Chilwell. Um, even Tottenham recently, you know, play with wing backs and they've got mm. Matt Doherty getting doing things and, and Reggie <laughs> on. Um, so I just think it's the quality. I'd say probably the quality of fullbacks. I don't think you know there's not many out and out wingers these days that that go on and 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 get loads of assists crossing the ball in like they did many a year ago. Um, can't really think of many in the top teams. Um, you know, even Arsenal, it's it's Tierney um, getting forward to, to supply the width on the on the left hand side. They definitely attack more down that side. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's probably just the way that that Klopp and, and Guardiola have really just raised the profile of fullbacks, the quality of fullbacks in its own country. You know, we often joke that the England national team have so many right backs. Um, I purely just think it's just just the way that the game's gone in terms of fullbacks taking a, a more attacking role in the team um, and just the quality that we got in this country. You know, we've got so many good um, attacking fullbacks um, as far down the league as, as you look. You know, you've even got um, Burnley, who recently, you know, Conor Roberts has, has started to, to get forward and get into the team and, and, and he gets forward a little bit. You've got... Um, Watford, Kamara, who's just come in, he gets forward and, and, and makes a lot of crosses for them. You know, I just think it's just a trend of the modern game and, and fullbacks are, are popular at the moment. They're the, they're the in fashion thing and, and the way, if they're going to get forward, the way they're most likely going to create is going to be down the flanks and crossing balls into the box and I think that's just what's happened. Yeah, I think Jake's right that it, it's partly that old-fashioned wingers have become a bit of a throwback. You don't see many of those around, so it does come from the fullbacks now. And there is a lot of quality in the Premier League fullbacks department right now. You even look at some of the mid-range teams like Brighton and Southampton, players like Tarek Lamptey and Tino Livramento, really dynamic, fast, attacking right-backs. And So that's obviously a trend in the game at the minute. I think it probably dates back to like a lot of things in the modern era, Guardiola's Barcelona, when they use their fullbacks differently to most of the European elite teams at that time. You think of players like Danny Alves became playmakers in their own right. Guardiola then went to Bayern and did the same sort of thing with Philip Lahm, um, obviously turned him into a bit of a midfielder. Still the same with Joshua Kimmich as well. So it's obviously not just happening over here. that The fullbacks have become a real attacking outlet and it's it's also partly because midfield seems to be so congested now with most teams playing three in now that it means the fullback is more often than not the spare man so I think that's a natural progression for, for the way the game's going um, just a question about the, the data itself Kev was it number of accurate crosses or percentage yep. of accurate number total so they're actually putting more crosses in the the big teams. Yeah, I'm I'm so certainly surprised to hear about were Manchester City in that? Yeah, were they one of the ones. So you wouldn't think of City as being a crossing team at all, would you? Because Guardiola's all about control and maintaining possession, keep the ball past the ball. The old Barcelona maxim. So I'm surprised to hear that in some ways, but. Yeah, I think Jake's right to highlight the, the quality of players at, at fullback in the Premier League now is extremely high, probably higher than it's ever been before. And fullbacks now can do things that fullbacks in the past never could. Like if you think about the great Premier League fullbacks, players like Gary Neville, they were very much back up to the winger 
and maybe occasionally overlap, but they weren't attackers like they are today. So I think it's a mix of the quality of player, tactical trends, meaning that the space is out wide for the fullbacks to attack, and just the, the sheer quality in Premier League fullbacks these days. Yeah, I, I think that's a decent point that they're just all pretty good and, and they are all allowed to move forward in their systems, I think. I don't know, Tad, you're, you're obviously probably the club that's best positioned to talk about, you know, creative, you know, play coming from your wingbacks. Yeah, I think it's been a perfect storm for Liverpool in, you know, Jamie's mentioned it, Jake's mentioned it, the evolution of the game where the fullbacks have become more important. And I mean, Trent came up at the exact right time and bringing Robertson in from Hull was a masterstroke. But maybe I can then back it up with the nerdy side of things, I guess, uh, especially from a Liverpool perspective, because we saw in 2018, Liverpool hired a throw-in coach um, that came in and obviously helped them out to, um, you know, become more effective with their throw-ins. I think his name, Thomas Grinnemark. And he's been working with the club since 2018, just trying to gain small margins there. And then before the start of this season, um, we, Liverpool then hired um, Neuro11, which is a neuroscience company. And they came in, they helped us out in pre-season and they've been working with us throughout the season. And they've been helping with Liverpool set pieces um, whether free kicks, uh, corners, all of that kind of stuff. And you can see the numbers for Liverpool in terms of set pieces. I think we're either first, if not second, in terms of goals from corners and stuff like that. Um, so I think from a Liverpool perspective, they've seen the value of attacking teams from every different angle. So if you've got, you know, we, we used to struggle, for example, to break teams down and and and, you know, thread the ball through okay, then you need to try something different for a little bit of time before you then try the through ball. Because if you just sit in the game trying through ball after through ball, the other team knows what you're going to do and they can set up to, you know, to defend that effectively. But if we're attacking from multiple angles, if it's from throw-ins, if it's from crosses, if it's from through balls, it's very difficult for a team to prepare against you. And as I said, with, with the crossing as well, um, I think it's helped that it's not just get chalk on your boots, son, and, and you know, get to the byline and just dink it up for, for a forward. We're seeing crosses as well from deep. We're seeing crosses where they do hit the byline, um, crosses where they're cutting it back towards the edge of the box, for example. Mm. There's a variation in how you're crossing the ball. It's not just, um, you know, hitting the byline and swinging it in. And I think... Jamie mentioned, for example, with City, you'll see the variations there for City. A lot of it isn't just lofted balls in. A lot of it is cutbacks where a Carl Walker, for example, that's got a lot of pace to hit um, to, to, to go on an overlap. And then he's cutting it back for the likes of Bernardo Silva, Kevin De Bruyne coming in. But yeah, from, from a Liverpool perspective, I'm not sure if other clubs are doing it, but I, I assume they are. But from a Liverpool perspective, I think it's very much a, a scientific way of trying to to develop the team and, and having guys like Neuro11 have helped the squad in figuring out different ways to attack teams. And I think crossing has been one of those tools that we've been able to 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 add to our to add to our bow. 
Yeah, it's certainly really interesting. And Liverpool were the first of these big clubs to really start peaking in that metric around then, around 2018-2019. And I also wonder how much of that is uh, kind of, to, I think Jake and Jamie touched on this as well, towards the fact that there wasn't creativity in midfield at Liverpool. That's no longer the point of Liverpool's midfield. You you sell Coutinho, you never bring in like a air quotes true number 10, and now all of a sudden you're relying on your wingbacks to, or sorry, on your fullbacks to create, and they're fully capable of doing so, like you mentioned with, with Trent coming through at the right time. I wonder if that's kind of part of it. Obviously, City, who are on this list, have you know, a air quotes, traditional 10, as do United. Uh, I'd say you could probably say the same with West Ham as well. So I'm not saying that's the only way it works, but I wonder if that's one of the reasons that Liverpool switched to it a little bit before everybody else got there, found success with it. And then we all know football is all about trends and cycles. And so if other people saw the success they were having, then they tried to replicate it. Um, But we will take a quick break and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right, and we are back. Jake, we'll start off with you talking Newcastle. Uh, probably an annoying loss today with a couple of questionable refereeing decisions thrown in the mix. But based off of everything recently, it probably feels like you're safe. But, but what did you make of that match and the result? Yeah, it was a bit of a disappointing game in that I thought we played well. I thought we pressed high, showed good showed good intentions, tried to win the ball high up. You know, I think for much of the game, we were had a, a, a good amount of control considering you're playing against the European champions away from home. Um, but yeah, the reference decisions were bad. Um, you know, I, I think that Havertz should have been sent off for, for, for the way he challenged Dan Byrne to for Havertz to get his elbow high enough to, to hit Dan Byrne in the way he did. You know, he got to think that's dangerous and reckless play considering Dan Byrne's what, six foot six. It's ridiculous that wasn't given as a red card. Um, I think Michael Richard said that the reason it might not have been because he didn't look at where the player was. I guess that might be why he did get sent off. But even so, it was dangerous. He, he should have gone. Uh, so it definitely felt like it was uh, destined for him to score the winner uh, when he stayed on the pitch. And then the penalty was a ridiculous decision. I don't know how they don't give a penalty for that. Um, the most frustrating thing is is the referee gives a corner. So, you know, he thinks that he, he, he was blocked off by three or four people in the view. He didn't see the incident. He gave a corner. The moment all the VAR has to say is, oh, it, he didn't. It, it, the ball went off Murphy. The player, uh, the Chalaba didn't get the ball, and then the referee, I'm sure, changes his decision. Why is that simple communication not given? Uh, I really don't understand VAR and and where, where why it intervenes in some places and when it doesn't intervene in others. It's, it's strange that there's no consistency and that decision. 
Um, you know, it probably did cost us three points, but you know, if you get a penalty, you might score it. And then I don't think Chelsea score two goals, so you know, it definitely cost us the result at the end of the day. And the red card again, it, it, that would have changed the game too. So it's, it's very frustrating. But it was our first loss of the, the calendar year. We've been playing so well, and um, you know, we've beat beaten some good teams in the last few weeks. We've climbed relatively clear of safety. I think we're nine points clear of Watford. I, I think. You know, we could be quite ordinary for the rest of the season and still stay up. We don't. We probably only need to win another game and draw a couple. I can't see us not doing that when we've got Norwich left to play. So um, yeah, I think I think we'll be fine. Um, but yeah, the, the, the transformation on Eddie House has been incredible. You know, we went away to Chelsea today. We didn't have Trippier, Joel Linton, uh, Joe Willock, John Joe Shelby, Alan St. Maximan, and playing on the bench. We didn't have. Callum Wilson either, so we're missing quite a few of our first choice players and we still went there and can come away feeling unlucky we didn't get a result. So, you know, the, the progress that Eddie Howe's made with these, these players is incredible. It's easy to say, oh, we spent a load of money in January, which we did, but I'm, I'm fairly certain at the end of January, a lot of pundits are saying that they hadn't done enough to make sure they stayed up. So and that now that, that the, the narrative has changed to... They fought their way out of it, so I don't think anybody really thought that Dan Byrne and Matt Target were good signs, and we made them. So it's a bit weird how that's changed, but there we go. Um, I think the the main improvements have been made by the players that have always been at the club, uh, Fraser and Willock and um, Jolinton especially. So yeah, I think we we can be quite pleased with the last few weeks. We go away to Everton on Thursday, so you know that's another another opportunity to to get a win and move clear, uh, further clear of the bottom three. But I don't think we're, we're in much danger of going down now. It would have to be quite some... It, it's not only the points either, like nine points is a lot, but it's the amount of teams that are below us. You've got, to, you know, can you see Brentford, Leeds, um, Everton, Burnley, Watford all catching up? It's it's the amount of teams more than this amount of points. I just can't see happening. So, yeah, very pleased with how things are going. Very pleased with the performance today. And hopefully we can get a few players back for the for the coming games and, and get a few nice uh, a few more good results and push on to the summer where we can uh, continue this this rebuild under Eddie Howe, which would be good. Yeah, you touched on something there, which was the improvement of the players you already had. Obviously, Eddie Howe wins manager of the month, probably not for the amount that your players have improved in training, but because of the results. But I did want to touch on him and his management a little bit because. Clearly, things have been working, and I think even better than some expected, because I think a lot of people thought he'd come in and you'd score goals and you could see goals you're going to win or lose 4-3 every week, and that really hasn't been the case. No, I think I think we've been one of the better defences in the, in the in this year um, since Eddie Howe's taken over. He's definitely imposed some sort of structure. He's managed to get the team play higher up the pitch, like you saw today, there was times when Chelsea were taking short goal kicks and there would be five or six Newcastle players in there in the in Chelsea's defensive third pressing for the ball and winning it back. Like it's not like he's sitting back and um you know trying to shore up the defence. We are being aggressive in the way we're pressing, playing higher off the pitch, and yet we're still managing to restrict teams to, to few opportunities against us. It, the the game management has improved a lot. I think the one thing that was disappointing from the start of the season is I think we dropped the most points from winning positions. So you know, you see the likes of Watford and Burnley as well. For them to start winning matches, they're going to have to start taking the lead. Whereas with Newcastle, it was just, we would we would quite regularly take leads. We just couldn't hold on to them. So 
it, there was something to work with there. If you got that game management and you got a bit of structure, you know, the goals would go in and you'd start getting results. I think we've seen that recently where we've had quite a few games where we've had one goal leads and managed to see them through. So it, I think Eddie Howe always knew it wouldn't take, it wouldn't be as difficult to turn this round as many thought it would be. But yeah, he's been impressive. It's, it's the, the improvements of the players that are already at the club. Fabian Shaw has been very good recently. Steve Bruce said he couldn't play in a back four. Well, we've seen that's not the case. Jolinton has been excellent. Uh, Joe Willock has sort of found his uh, found his his form again, uh, and even John Joe Shelby, like he's running more than he's ever run in in, in a football shirt before. Uh, he's really putting the yards in. He's apologising for his performance after we've won, won one game, so that's ridiculous. Why would you have to apologise for your performance after you've won a game? But that's the standards that he has set at the club. And yeah, I think he's he's definitely done his reputation a lot of good this year. He's um. He was seen as, you know, the guy that relegated Bournemouth. He's seen as somebody that can coach defence. And I think that he's putting paid to a lot of those opinions of him. And, uh, yeah, I, I had my doubts about him when we appointed him. But I have to say I was completely wrong to have those doubts. He, he, he seems to be a very good manager who's learned a lot from his experience. And, he you know, he's still so young. And, uh, yeah, it seems the players really have taken to him as well. So he, he deserves a lot of credit. And, yeah, if I would uh, I'd be very disappointed not to see him get uh, a lot longer in this job. You know, I, I, I had my fears around kind of Sintrak Benitez that Eddie Howe was only one or two results away from the fans really pushing for Benitez. But now I think that he's completely got the fan base on side. I can't see them wanting any other manager, for, for at least for the, the short to the medium term. And yeah, he's done, done really well. And he earned that manager of the month. I think that he was uh, uh, the right re- recipient of that. And he's, uh, yeah, he's got a lot lot of that he's brought the um the team forward so long in such a short amount of time that we've gone from a team that hadn't won until December to a team that have now pulled safe and uh, a relatively secure mid table by March, which you know it's, it's no easy going that. Yeah, totally. Uh Jamie, we'll come to you now to talk about Burnley. <laughs> Before we hit the record button, we were all joking about how boring our rest of seasons might be. Uh and <laughs> you were kind of bemoaning that that might not be the case. Obviously, if you'd won at the weekend, it would have put you outside of the relegation zone for the first time in a while. Uh what did you make of that match and how damaging is it that that it wasn't another one or or three points? Yeah, I think it's really damaging. Um Sean Dash after the game said that he didn't think it was that big a blow. Um, there's still 11 games to go, but the next one's Manchester City at home, so we can call that 10 games to go. Um, I don't expect him to come out and say that it was terrible or a disaster, because you don't say that for morale reasons, but you've got to be realistic. It's it's a really bad result for us. Um, there's a couple of times recently we've had the opportunity to get out of the bottom three. Leicester at home was the same. We only needed a draw in that one and lost at home. And to go to Brentford, who have obviously been struggling really badly recently, although they beat Norwich, seems like everyone beats Norwich. So I think we were hoping that we were going to catch them on a bit of a downturn, and that's just not what happened. Um, it, it was a strange game, really, because I felt for most of it, Burnley was certainly as good as Brentford or as bad as Brentford. It was two pretty poor teams, really. Um, we missed two really good chances, one in each half, Dwight McNeil and Maxwell Corne both should have scored. And obviously, if one of those chances goes in, then maybe it's a different game and we close out a victory. But 
it's shoulda, woulda, coulda and slackness in both penalty areas. It's been the same old story for us all season, really. Um, Brentford's goal is very well made by Christian Eriksen and well finished by Ivan Tony. But if you give Christian Eriksen that much space to put a ball into the box and give it Ivan Tony a free run at it, it's only going to be one result. So I thought there were a lot of similarities with the Leicester game in that we were in the game and trying to stay in the game rather than trying to win the game. Um, and against Leicester, they brought on players who have far more quality than anything in our team, let alone squad. They brought on Vardy and Madison. They made a difference at the end. And Brentford just had extra quality in the final third as well. I think it's worth asking the question how Brentford have got two attackers better than anything we have when they're in their first ever Premier League season and we're in our sixth straight season in the Premier League. I don't mm. understand that they've got Ericsson and Ivan Tony who would walk into our team. It seems wrong. But fair play to them and it looks like they're going to stay up possibly at our expense now. Yeah, it would certainly be a tough break. And <laughs> there do have to be questions about uh, how the money has been spent since uh, the new ownership took charge. Uh, and kind of to that point, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Aaron Lennon. So you signed him, what, like two, two and a half years ago? And then he was released, and then you brought him back anyway just because you needed bodies. And it always seemed like he was just supposed to be a bit piece player. But now he's playing meaningful minutes. He started seven matches in a row for you. Not just started, but started and completed seven in a row for you. And I was just curious your thoughts on him as a player at this stage. I think most people kind of tuned out on Aaron Lennon, you know, half a decade ago. It's a strange one because I think he has been worth his place, but he is also starting almost by default. Um, Johan Goodmanson's the only other winger in the squad and he's injured. It sounds like he's possibly going to miss the rest of the season. So Lennon's playing because there isn't really anyone else to to go in that role if we're going to play 4-4-2 and we know Sean Dash likes to play 4-4-2. So it's it's difficult to assess him. I think one thing you're always going to get with Aaron Lennon is work rate. Um, he always puts in the hard yards. He helps out his defender. Um, and in the Sean Dash 4-4-2, that's very important. The, the wingers are essentially extra fullbacks a lot of the time. So Aaron Lennon does all the defensive work that we need from him. Um, he maybe doesn't contribute as much going the other way as I would like to see, but I completely understand how difficult it is for how difficult it is for these wingers to do all the defensive work and everything the other way. And um, certainly the frustration that is happening with the fan base with Dwight McNeil right now, I think is partly due to is just being asked to do too much. Um so it's maybe silly to, to look at Aaron Lennon's performance and say, yes, he's doing all this running, but what's he actually producing in the final third? And to be fair, he has come up with some important contributions. We got points at Palace. He forced the own goal that got us a draw there. He scored in the win at Bryson. That looked like it was going to be a big turning point for us. So he's playing pretty well. Um, I, I'm not as big a fan as as a lot of supporters are, I think he's he's quite limited in what he can produce, really. Um, and I think Aaron Lennon's probably always been quite a limited player. He's always very reliant on his pace, wasn't he? And obviously now he's 52 or however old he is, he's not very quick anymore. I actually, the best thing about watching Aaron Lennon is that he still thinks he's fast. So 
every now and again, it happens at least once a game, I think. He'll get one-on-one with the fullback and he'll knock the ball past the fullback and try and run past him, thinking that he's still 16 and playing for Leeds when he came into the Premier League a million years ago. And then the fullback gets there first because they're probably a decade younger and can run. So, um, um, Aaron Lennon's not the smartest footballer, put it that way. But yeah, he's doing a, he's doing a pretty good job considering, considering, like you say, I think a lot of people completely forgot that he existed when he went to Turkey. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And obviously, as a Spurs fan, I, I'm glad to see him getting his minutes and, and doing relatively well, although you're right. Uh, I think he was always way more limited than he was supposed to be, obviously, when he was a youth player was just destroying people. But at that age, you know, if you're as fast as he yeah, was, it's easy exactly. to do that. A lot, a lot of players don't develop, I don't think, properly if they are that fast when they're young because you can just rely on your pace. There's so many players, Aaron Lennon, Theo Walcott, sort of contemporaries, who came through and you just burn past people with your pace. You don't have to learn finesse, skill, beat a player one-on-one. You just run past them. So I don't think Lennon ever really added extra gears to his game other than pace. And now that he's in his mid-30s, I think the limitations of his game are becoming more and more clear. Yeah, I agree. But best of luck to him and to you guys. I, yeah, the Brentford loss is rough, and hopefully you'll be able to to recover. I think uh, as a podcast, you know, we're we're eyeing Everton now as as your best chance at, at staying up. <laughs> but we'll see how that goes. All right, Ted, we'll come to you now to talk about Liverpool. Uh, you won again. I'm, uh, we don't need to talk about that. Although it was a little tighter than I think some would have expected heading into that match. Obviously, the big news this week is all surrounding Mohamed Salah and you know some mildly contradicting reports of where things stand with his current contract issues. Then obviously he he grabs the back of his knee, which is kind of a weird place uh, to grab right before he came off and right after he scored that penalty. I was just curious, your, your current thoughts on Mo Salah, both the contract and, and when you think we'll see him again? Um, he he mentioned that it wasn't too serious, so hopefully he's as good a, 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 di- a doctor diagnosing his own injury as he is uh, scoring. <laughs> um, so, yeah, hopefully it's not too long. Um, in terms of the contract situation, I, I think it's, it's quite simple from Salah's perspective. It is, show me that we're going to be ambitious and chase trophies for the time period I'm signing for. And I think the tricky situation is Jurgen Klopp's contract ends in two years. They're asking Salah to sign for four or five years. And he's saying, okay, well, what's what's the plan? Give me assurities about what the plan is going forward. And he he's quite an ambitious player himself. Uh, he he wants to win the Ballon d'Or. That that's his goal at the moment is to win whether or not he can do it uh, that that's still that will be decided but that's definitely what he's aiming for and he's basically saying okay at Liverpool can I achieve that and at the moment you know he's at a club that is still in all of their competitions they've won one um, you know they've already won one and they're still in all of them so it's you know I guess the club is saying well we are um, able to facilitate that for you. Um, and then for him, it's a case of, okay, but can you facilitate it going down the road? And, you know, I'm I'm one of those Liverpool fans that is, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the football that we have now because I know Klopp is, le- if he signs this contract extension, I'll be absolutely surprised. I'm ready, already, I've, I've already grieved Klopp leaving the club. 
um, in two years' time. I'm just enjoying and hoping we can collect as many trophies as we can before he goes. So from that perspective, I'm I'm 50-50 at the moment whether Salah stays because it's a matter of is the club going to show him that they, they're serious um, on a long-term pers- um, perspective. If not, then he leaves. But at least the, the the club is in a position now and they've shown with the signings of the Jotas, the Diazes, etc., that if they do sell Salah, I'm more confident now than I was in previous years that they will be able to use that money to buy maybe not a Mohamed Salah as he is now, because that that there are very few players in the world that you can buy that match that, but maybe someone that will be a Mo Salah in a couple of years' time. Maybe that's how they bridge it there. So yeah, so at the moment I'm 50-50. I hope he signs. Um, I find it weird that the uh, Liverpool ju- uh, journalists are kind of building a narrative against Mo Salah. That's usually a, a very worrying tell. Um, we've seen it with the likes of Raheem Sterling, where the journalists try and turn the, the the fans on the player when a lot of the time the players haven't really done that bad a thing. And maybe with my line of work, I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to how players, um, you know, the bad reps that players get and, and the narratives that get pushed against players. But um, I, when Henderson asked for a contract at the beginning of the season, when he didn't need to get a contract, he still had two years on his deal. The narrative from the journalists was pretty much, oh, we have to tie him down. We have to sign him. It doesn't matter <laughs> how much captain. it is. Yeah, he's the captain. He's been, you know, the focal point of this team in all the cups that we've won or whatever. He's the greatest thing. He's the second coming. Whereas he was coming off of a, a, a serious injury that he's going to basically carry for the rest of his career. His minutes have to be managed um, going forward from that. This was a prove-it season for him, and he didn't have to prove anything because he got the bag before the season started. Whereas Mo Salah has proven season after season that he's not a one-hit wonder. He can produce for for Liverpool at a very high level, yet... There's no clamoring for for the club, or there's no pressure on the club to get a deal done. So I do I do find that a bit worrying. But yeah, as I said, I'm I'm fifty fifty on whether or not he signs. I hope he does. I hope they come to an agreement. But if he doesn't, then I, 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 at least I've still got two years of Jurgen Klopp to enjoy. And then after that, I I, I don't know. It, it's it's a scary time after that. <laughs> Yeah, well then, I, I guess this is going to be like a, a double-barreled question for you then. Uh, currently, who do you think is your best front three? Because obviously bringing in Luis Diaz has put Diego Jota on the bench. Firmino has kind of, he was the fourth choice. Is he now the fifth choice? And then if Salah goes, would it change it for, for next season? Yeah, I was under the impression that either Salah or Mane would be leaving this coming transfer window. Um, the assumption was it would be Mane, as in Salah signs a new contract, Mane gets sold and um, they reinvest that money. But that could then flip if Salah is insistent on not signing a contract and then maybe they renew Mane as it, the club might see that an easier route to to solving things. So at the moment, the best um, front three, I would say, is Mane through the middle, Diaz on the left, uh, Salah on the right. And the reason for that is 
Diaz is undroppable at the moment, which is ridiculous for a, really a player. Yeah, a player that has come in in January to be undroppable is, I mean, you you would know with a Kuliszewski, who I think is undroppable at the moment at Spurs. But for Liverpool, Diaz, the impressive thing is he's learned a lot of the defensive side of things, the pressing that we demand from our players quite quickly. He's not there yet as as a fully-fledged, he knows everything about the press and the pressing chains. But that's usually the reason why players get held back. Robertson came in, he didn't play for six months. Fabinho came in, he didn't play for six months. Jota came in, he was only coming in as a substitution in games. It's because our pressing system is very, very reliant on everyone knowing what they need to do at the right time, or it all breaks down. If one person doesn't do their job correctly, it breaks down and it, and it becomes messy. So for him to be trusted with that role shows the level of football intelligence that he's bringing to the you know to to, to the table and then on an attacking sense of things he is very explosive direct doesn't shy away from taking responsibility which is good to see um mane down the middle is a new role for him obviously he's he started on the right hand side and then um Obviously, when Salah came in, moved to the left-hand side. But down the middle is a new role for him. I think it's interesting because he's willing at times to play on the shoulder of defenders, which helps us stretch the play um, at times when maybe things get a bit congested. And then he's comfortable dropping back to come and collect the ball. Um, still yet to be tested against maybe like a physical defense and, and whether that can become a problem if he can hold his own on that perspective but at the moment i think he's learning he's growing he brings the the defensive side of things as well which is what we loved from Firmino playing in that role so maybe that's kind of why mane has been ahead of um everyone else because Firmino isn't the Firmino we you know from two seasons ago he's been in a slump for about two two seasons now so he's not the same player you then need a replacement for him jota came in and deputized um it was interesting at the beginning of the season because Jota was basically given the keys for that role, but was told in in a very strong way that he needed to sort out his fitness um, because the club couldn't afford for you know to bank on oh we have to sub him off every game. Um, so he brought in a personal trainer. He sorted out that fitness and he had that role. He gets injured. Mane steps in and I think he's done enough to keep that job. Um, for now, and then whilst Jot is working his way back in as a super sub, I think works well. Um, yeah, so so that's the best one. If Salah leaves, um, it depends who they bring in for Salah. But if, let's say, worst case scenario, Salah leaves and they don't bring anyone for the front line, then Mane would sh- shift back to the right-hand side, I'd, I think, because he's the only one really that can play that role comfortably. And then Diaz would stay on the left, Jota would play down the middle, and then we've got Firmino, um, you know, as as the backup, I guess, to Jota. And I'm assuming Origi is leaving, um, so maybe another backup forward, left winger. They, 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 they would have to bring someone in, basically, if Salah leaves. But yeah, if, if he does leave, Mane would probably be, of the players we currently have, the most likely to then move to that right-hand side. Gotcha. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on it. I, I don't think you're going to want for goals uh, in any of these scenarios. But yeah, 
We'll see. Although, you know, losing big time Divock Origi, you know, could really hurt you uh, long term. But uh, we'll move from there into the final segment here, which is going to be player watch. And I was just curious, who at your club do you think will record the most assists from now until the end of the season? Yeah, for Newcastle, it's a tough one. We've got quite a few uh, players that are creating chances. I think Ryan Fraser is, is maybe the obvious one. He's taken a few set pieces and he seems to be getting back to his best in open play. Uh, he didn't start today, but I think it was more a rest uh, than anything else. I think he's, he's probably the one for me. Um, maybe St. Maximan, if he if he stays fit and plays the minutes, but he seems to um, be having a few issues right now, as he, as he often does, uh, with, with interest more important than football. Um, I have to say, but yeah, he played today. Maybe he'll play a few more in the coming weeks. He's he's probably the the, the other one. Um, one of those two, probably. Um, yeah, more likely Ryan Fraser. I think he's back into his groove, and I think he's going to have a, a strong finish to to the season. Yeah, I mean, um, an assist means a goal, right? So I'm not really familiar with this terminology because we don't really score <laughs> any goals. <laughs> Um, Ashley Westwood is normally up there. I think Westwood's had a really poor season, but his set pieces are always important for us. Um, and if we're going to stay up, we're going to need to score quite a few goals from set pieces, I would imagine. So he's probably a safe bet. Um, I really hope Dwight McNeil turns around his form because at the moment he's completely low on confidence and struggling badly. So I think we need McNeil to to find some confidence and form from somewhere and start delivering some assists. I think he's only got one all season, which for a player who's been talked of as a £59 wide player, it's not really good enough. So I think McNeil and Westwood are probably the two front runners for us. Yeah, for Liverpool, I think uh, Trent is, is going to take it. Obviously, Mo Salah held it for uh, most of the season when he, when he was leading the assist chart in the Premier League. But Trent's caught up to him. He's overtaken him now. And I can see him um, just taking the mantle and, and running with it from there. I think also an interesting one to look out for will be eventually when the trend, you know, we're speaking about crossing and, and the importance that it now has in the game. The trend deep cross to Diaz running in for headers isn't, a uh, you know, a, a move that Liverpool have used yet. But Diaz is quite deceptively decent in the air. Um and him running in on the back post against fullbacks who are usually not as tall as 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 Diaz is and running in at pace, I think could become uh, something that could be interesting. Maybe not for this season. Maybe it only comes in next season. But I definitely think if that if, if Trent's going to really run away with this assist thing, that's going to become a factor. Interesting stuff. Uh, we'll end things there. So if you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two ends where I post about anything I do. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me again. Um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I write and edit the Nona Never Newsletter, which is all about Burnley. That goes out on a Monday via Substack. It's free. Um, and I post a link to it on my Twitter as well, which is at Jamie Smith Sport. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on again, Kev. And thanks to the listeners for listening. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tad Predicts, and I host the EPL Index, a Tad Predictable podcast. Yep, definitely go check all of these guys' stuff out. All of them are terrific. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable or by searching EPL Roundtable on all of your podcast services. 
Uh, you can also email us if you have any questions at eplroundtable at gmail.com. But we haven't gotten many of those in a while. So feel free. If you want to ask us a question and have us talk about it, let us know. Uh, but thanks again to these three for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.